We'll be reading from 1 Samuel. We'll be starting from chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, son of Elohu, son of Toho, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and to the Lord has granted me 
my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were, those, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in the darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that in your word you've preserved for us your message to us, a message about your son Jesus from every page of scripture. We pray, Father, for your Spirit's help to be able to see this, and not just to see it for our heads, but for our hearts, that we might grow in trusting your faithfulness and living in accord with that trust. Father, I pray that you'll bless this time as we read this word now. Help me to speak clearly from this passage as I ought, and in ways that uphold you and exalt your Son. So, Father, we ask that you'll bless us in these ways for your glory and our joy together. In Jesus' name, amen. Trust is a hard thing. Trust is something that needs to be earned. Trust is something that comes with time and it comes with evidence. Author Tim Hansel found this out the hard way. He was on a nature walk with his five-year-old son, Zach. It was a warm, humid day, and they were climbing across these little cliffs, little for most of us, but probably huge for a five-year-old. And then as they were climbing around one of the cliffs, Tim heard his son, Zach, yell, Hey, Dad, catch me! He turns, and he sees Zach joyfully jump off a rock straight at him. He had jumped and then yelled, Hey, Dad! Instantly, Tim became a Cirque du Soleil circus act, catching him in his arms, wrapping his arms tight around his son, and then the momentum took them both tumbling to the ground. And when Tim found his voice again, he gasped, Zach, can you give me one good reason why you did that? Zach sits up with a little cheeky smile. He says, sure, because you're my dad. Remarkable, right? Zach's whole assurance was based in the fact that his father was trustworthy. 
He could even jump off a cliff face and know that his dad would catch him. Such was his trust. Trust that had been earned very clearly in his five short years. Trust is a hard thing. It has to be earned. It has to come with evidence. Is that the way with us and God as well? How many of us would trust God wholeheartedly like Zach did with his dad, Tim? Or maybe, maybe there's some of us here that haven't quite done that yet. Maybe you haven't put your whole trust in God. Maybe it's because you're wanting more assurance, more, more evidence that he's worth trusting, worth investing your whole life to him. Trust is a big thing. And it's what the opening chapters of 1 Samuel are all about. As we see a woman in our opening scene wrestling with the fact that she has no children, will she trust God? But also the issue of trust is there for the reader too, as we see priests of God who are taking advantage of the people they were supposed to be serving, as we see the father of these priests failing to discipline his son. If God allows that to continue, well, is he worth trusting? In some ways, these opening chapters just fit into the, the context of their time. If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, and they are open to 1 Samuel, keep your finger there. I want you to flip back just two, two pages, three pages, past Ruth and to the end of the book of Judges. And I want you to look at the final line there of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. That might sound like a great thing, freedom for everyone to do what they want. But when you read the final chapters of Judges, you re it reveals that it's not a big party for everyone. These chapters are filled with... Uh, sorry, these chapters are, are filled with idolatry, with gang violence and mob rule and rape, the dismembering of a dead body, civil war, the endorsed kidnapping of young women to be married off to a bunch of single men. We're not talking about some pagan nation. We're talking about the nation of God, the people of Israel. It's a mess, a profoundly dark and chaotic time. Now, the book of Ruth is set in this time. And let me encourage everyone who hasn't heard that sermon series yet to go check it out online. It was one of my favorite series. And our book uh, in, uh, of 1 Samuel, over the, for the next 12 weeks, it also overlaps with this terrible time. Into this darkness and chaos, a question, a big question floats up. Is God going to do something about this? Is he going to, is he going to into this mess and solve this mess that Israel has gotten herself into? That's partly what the book of 1 Samuel wants to answer. But the book also has a larger, bigger question to answer as well. You see, 1 Samuel was originally one book. One, one, 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one book. Uh, it's been split into two, most likely because of the length of the parchment would have been too big, uh, and it was, uh, that it was written on. And the story tells of the rise and fall of the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. Now, the book was probably not written during the time of the events that we're going to be reading. It was most likely compiled much later, and quite possibly to the audience of Israelites who were in exile, uh, the, to the nation which had been kicked out of the promised land for their 
ongoing rebellion against God. See, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, these books together were probably finalized and finished writing in that exile pit period in order to answer this big question. How did everything go so wrong that we ended up in exile? And 1 Samuel plays a part in answering that question. That's partly uh, why we're going to be listening to this book uh, and going through it over the next 12 weeks. It's an Old Testament book with many familiar characters and stories, but it's a message for the present which resonates to this day. Small lessons about leadership, about trusting God, about obedience to Him, and bigger lessons that help us see how God is preparing and paving the way for His eternal Davidic King to come. Oh, I hope that sounds exciting, because I'm pretty excited to jump into the story now as well. Let's get into the opening pages of 1 Samuel. We're back now. Uh, and here we meet a bunch of people. Uh, thank you for Chi, uh, to Chi for, that first, uh, for the reading uh, in this first section. First, we meet Elkanah, a man with two wives. His first wife is Hannah, and his second wife is, I, 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 I pronounce it, Penina. Right? And very interestingly, in at the end of verse 2, the narrator highlights for us that Hannah had no children. Now, the narrator goes on to highlight that again and again kind of like rubbing lemon juice into a paper cut. Hannah's pain is being pointed out. You see it there in verse 5. While Elkanah has, a family, has the family in Shiloh for worship at the tabernacle, we've got him giving food to his family, and he gives to Penina and his children, but he gives a larger portion of food to Hannah because he loves her. And notice at the end of verse 5, though the Lord had closed her womb. Right? The agony of this is made worse by Penina, as we read in verse 6, who would provoke Hannah grievously to irritate her. And again, at the end of verse 6, we read, because the Lord had closed her womb. Being childless was painful enough. Knowing that it was God who was closing this door would have been deeply painful. Adding to that the the kind of family expectations, the the quiet whispers, and the often asked question, when are you guys going to have kids? Anyone here who has struggled with infertility knows the pain. It's the pain of the constantly negative pregnancy test and the pain of having people insensitively asking without caring about the pain. But then there's the rival wife, Elkanah's second wife, who was able to bear him children. She keeps rubbing it in, making the pain worse. And then to top off Hannah's distress is the incredible lack of empathy from Elkanah. Husbands and wannabe husbands, here's a small object lesson for you. Can you see what Elkanah says in verse 8? Don't be that dumb. Right? See, see the way that Elkanah asks his questions. Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Bro, <laughs> this is a man who was not paying attention. Right? And sometimes like impatient men, he, wants, he just wants her fixed. And then look, look at what he asks at the end. Am I not more to you than ten sons? You can, you can kind of imagine that scene. And then maybe one of the servants is kind of standing off on the side and going... No, no, don't, 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 don't go there. All right? Not a good idea. So what does Hannah do? 
She takes her deep and multi-layered distress and she prays. You see in verse 10, she prays to the Lord and wept bitterly. This is a wonderful model and encouragement. Not just for women struggling with infertility, but for anyone who goes through a time of deep distress. Pray and weep bitterly. God is not offended by intense prayers. He welcomes us to pour out the depths of our hearts. He welcomes it because He is big enough to handle these big emotions. The Bible is filled with all sorts of intense prayers. In the Psalms, in the prophets, even God's own Son offered up prayers with weeping. In her prayer, Hannah vows that her first child will be offered to God as a servant. And while she's praying quietly, the chief priest Eli notices. Now, we're going to get to Eli a little bit more in a moment, but here already, we're learning that Eli isn't the sharpest tool in the shed. The Singaporeans here might say that he's a little blur, right? He mistakes Hannah's praying for drunkenness and he tells her off. Probably to his surprise, he learns that she's praying and to cover himself, he goes, oh, bless you, my dear. And then in verse 19, we read that they head back home, and at the end of verse 19, look at the end of verse 19, the Lord remembered her. Now, this is important. When it says the Lord remembered her, it's not saying that God forgot. In the Bible, the opposite of remember is not forget, but to forsake. The narrator tells us twice already that God had closed Hannah's womb but he did not forsake her to this. He remembered and opened her womb and she conceived a child. And then when we read that phrase, the Lord remembered, it also is a bright signal that God is about to act in a big way. God remembered Noah in the ark and that line comes halfway through the story and God acts to lower the floodwaters. God remembered his people in slavery in Egypt, and that, happens, that line happens at the beginning of Exodus. And then God acts to raise up Moses and set Israel free. Ten plagues crossing the Red Sea, Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston singing in the background. Right? God remembered Hannah has the same vibe. He's not just opening the womb of, uh, womb of this individual woman to give her a child, but the child would be named Samuel, And Samuel, who this book is named after, will play a pivotal role in paving the way for the first kings of Israel. So, she gives birth, he is weaned, then he's offered to the temple, uh, into the tabernacle for service. And then she prays this astonishing prayer in chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. It's not just a prayer of thanksgiving, but it also lays out some of the key and important themes for the entire book of Samuel. So have a look at uh, like these, these, uh, these passages here. Chapter 2, verse 2. We've got this verse here about God's holiness and utter distinctiveness. Read it again with me. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. I'm going to see this clearly next week as well. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 4 to 8 in this prayer. God is a God of reversals. So take a look at verses 6 to 7 in particular. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Right, reversing the situation unexpectedly is one of God's delightful ways. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9, end of verse 9. For not by might shall a man prevail. Man's power is not to be trusted. 
uh, chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, all of God's enemies with fall. We're going to see over the coming weeks, Hannah's prayer will touch on all of these big themes throughout the book. Now, the point being made here is that God is proving his faithfulness to Hannah. He gives her a child, an important child, and she responds by laying out in her prayer the main things we need to know as we continue to read. Hannah prayed to God because she believed God was faithful to his promises. It's this faithfulness that forms the ground of her assurance and the assurance of our own prayers. God wasn't just being faithful to her, He was being faithful to all of his people, raising up a much-needed prophet and priest. The people will need a God-appointed priest to come because in point number two, we move on to see Eli, the chief priest, and his sons get called out. First notice in the section how this section is actually sliced up a bit. Um, If you read it through the week, you may have noticed this, but glance over your Bibles for a second And notice that verses 12 to 17 of chapter 2 are about Eli's sons. And then in verse 18 to 21, you read about Samuel and Hannah. And then it flips back to verse uh, 22 to 25, which is Eli rebuking his sons. In the middle of that, verse 26, you've got the Samuel reference, him growing. Then it flips back to Eli again in verse 27 to 36, who was rebuked and judged. And then chapter 3, verse 1, opens up with Samuel ministering. You see this constant kind of back and forth between Eli and his sons and Samuel. A very clear contrast is being made for us as we read. Okay, let's focus then on Eli's sons first, Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, What you need to know about the priests is that uh, the Old Testament law allowed the priests to eat some of the sacrifices that were made to God. It was part of their allowance. But what the boys were doing here was going far beyond that. They were bullying their way into taking meat and the fat which belonged to the Lord. And the place of this sin made the whole situation worse. They were doing it at the tent of meeting in front of the offering altars, the place where sacrifices and offerings were made to God, they were taking for themselves. Uh, to, to get a sense of how wrong this was, think about this story. It's, uh, this is a parallel story. Uh, back in July of 2006, a 61-year-old German man was brought before court uh, and brought before a judge for, on trial for stealing. While he was facing the bench and chatting with the judge, he stole a bunch of her keys. Nobody noticed until he left the room, and when he was in the toilet, court officials confronted him and found the missing keys. Here was a man who was standing in front of a judge because he was in trouble for stealing, and he steals her keys. The priests here were committing their sin in the place where sins are forgiven. Then jump down to verse 22, and we find that the boys were also sleeping with the women who were serving in the tabernacle, and all this stuff was becoming widely known. The sins of Eli's sons are clear, but so is the weakness of Eli. Uh, Have a look at verse 22 to 25, where he attempts to rebuke his sons, but it's such a pathetic attempt. Uh, Read it with me from verse 23. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. 
No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? You notice when you look at that, those words, there is a warning there, but it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a limp rebuke, isn't it? Carry on, verse 25. How do they respond? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Hmm. Maybe something that we're not very comfortable hearing about. These boys were beyond repentance. God had given them over to judgment. Now, God is not to blame here. Like Pharaoh in Exodus, they had hardened their hearts by their own actions, and God was judging them as well. But this whole situation, again, reflects very poorly on Eli. He is not a strong enough leader that the people need. His words are gentle. They express sorrow and distress at their sin, but he did not have the strength to stop their behavior. And then so from verse 27 onwards, an unnamed prophet comes to judge Eli and his sons. And what he says is devastating because it reveals that Eli was also enjoying the spoils of the sins of his sons. Have a look from verse 29 with me. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Whoa, you see what Eli's doing there? He has been fattening himself on what his sons had been stealing from God. He was enjoying the benefits of the sins of his sons. Later in chapter 4, verse 18, when Eli dies, we find out that he was old and heavy. Uh, That Hebrew word means fat. This makes Eli's rebuke even weaker. He was a man enjoying the benefits of his son's sins while also trying to rebuke them. The judgment from the prophet is devastating. Have a look at verse 34, chapter 2, verse 34. And this, shall be, uh, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever." So Eli's told, Eli, your time and your son's time is done. I'm going to raise up a new priest. I'm going to choose him according to my own heart. This priest will be my choice. Your family line will be cut off forever. This new priest will pave a way for my anointed forever. And that's devastating news. You notice how Eli responds? You notice that actually there's no response? Silence. No idea what he says. And in the middle of all that, you've got Samuel, who's just on the rise constantly. Eli and his sons are being brought down, and Samuel just keeps growing. Notice the growing language. Take a look at uh, chapter 2, verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with the linen ephod. Have a look at then at the end of verse 21. 
and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Jump to verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord as, and also with man. You see this kind of contrast of how the priests are being brought down, but Samuel is growing, and it's the Lord who is doing that. Here is this new priest that is being raised up, literally and metaphorically. The point being made here is that because God is faithful to his people, that will sometimes mean bringing down unfaithful ministers and servants. The past few years, it's been hard watching one celebrity pastor after another fall because of sin. This is a sobering warning then for all leaders, leaders here at Esley Church and leaders as you may be in the future. Hidden sin is one thing, but public sin that offends God and takes advantage of God's people will not go unpunished. Now, if you've ever heard sermons on 1 Samuel before, uh, you may have heard one on chapter 3, the calling of Samuel, and how you should listen to God's call as well. But if I can put it to you that that actually might be falling into this sort of main character energy reading, as I mentioned before. And again, I'm not sure that this chapter should be read as a lesson on listening to God's calling in our lives. And the reason why I say that is because of the context. Here's what... Go- Think of, think of it like this in terms of what's going on. If you didn't know, uh, we are meant to be having El Nino conditions in Australia at the moment. Now, El Nino usually means drought, but it's been super wet over this summer, so that, that's something. But a drought in Australia is a devastating thing. Because a drought, lead, a lack, that lack of water leads to loss of life. Now, I want you to take a look at chapter 3, verse 1, because we see a drought of God's Word. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the Word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. You see, the Word of the Lord was rare in those days, like a drop of rain in a drought. God had not been sending any visions to anyone. But then look at how the chapter finishes in chapter 3, verse 19. Look at how the drought is broken. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. See, this chapter isn't about the calling of Samuel alone. It's primarily about how God will now communicate through Samuel for the benefit of his people. The drought of God's word is being broken. And the life-giving reign of God's word was about to begin. And that helps us understand the calling of Samuel. So you go back to the earlier parts when uh, God is calling out to Samuel in the night, everyone's asleep, and then in chapter 3, verse 4, we read, then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. So God's calling out to Samuel, he thinks it's Eli, he runs off to Eli, and Eli's like, no, that's not me. 
And this happens again, and then again for a third time. And by the third time, remember, Eli is a little bit slow. Eli picks up that maybe this is God speaking. It's been so long. It's been so long since anyone heard from God. He doesn't recognize this moment. Eli tells Samuel, answer God and wait to hear what he says. The fourth time it happens, Samuel responds and God speaks to him a word, but again, it's a word of judgment on Eli. And again, it's a damning word of judgment on Eli and his house. In verses 11 to 14, God says that Eli's house, his family, was going to be cut off. At the end of verse 13, God points directly at Eli as the head of the family who should have restrained his sons, but he was too weak to do it. Then in the morning, Eli is anxious to find out what, he, what Samuel has heard, but look at the way he threatens the boy, the young boy. Have a look at verse 17. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Eli may have been weak with his sons, but this big man is now threatening this little kid. But when Samuel tells him everything, he is again stunned into silence. And all he can mutter are these somewhat pathetic words in verse 18. So Samuel told him everything and he hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. No repentance. No grief, no crying out, just a matter-of-fact statement. It says a lot about the leadership and the spiritual state of Eli. But the drought is over. God helps Samuel to keep growing, growing physically, but also growing in his reputation across Israel. Uh, Then we read at the end, as we read before, God reveals himself to Samuel at Shiloh. God continues to speak. After so many years of silence, after so much time without visions, God now speaks through Samuel, who he is called and raised up. You see, the, the final chapter here today isn't about how Samuel is called and how we should listen to God's call. It's about God speaking choosing to speak through Samuel to this nation that has no king and is doing whatever they want. And now they will have, a God, will have God speaking to them, God telling his people what they should do. God will lead his people through his prophet and priest Samuel. See, only when God reveals himself can anyone know him. If God doesn't reveal himself, then there is no way for us to know him. And So at the end here, the readers are comforted that God has indeed spoken. Now, if we take a step back for a moment and survey all that we've looked at, what do we find? We find more than just stories that are encouraging us to to do likewise, right? Be like Hannah, trust God more. Be like Samuel, listen to his calling. What we see are people in this story who are relatively helpless and unable to help themselves. A womb that is barren a drought of God's Word. We also see leaders acting wickedly and taking advantage of people. What we see are the main characters kind of reflecting the state of the nation broadly, helpless and in need of God to act, with leaders who are wicked and leading the people astray. 
Remember, this book was probably written to a people who were in exile. They needed to be reminded that their situation was like that of Hannah. They needed to be reminded that their situation was like that of Hannah and like being under the leaders of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. They were in exile because they refused to listen to God. They refused to drink the wells from His Word. They had corrupt leaders who took advantage of them and led them astray. What they needed was for God to act, to open closed wombs, to judge and bring down wicked leaders, to break the drought and help the people drink deeply from His Word. And God does all of that. He makes promises and He keeps them, showing Himself to be faithful, uh, the faithful God that they could trust. God does not forsake His people. He would remember and act. You see, what we... What we have here is just small pictures in 1 Samuel. We see in the fullness of the coming of Jesus. 1 Samuel 1 to 3 helps prepare us for the coming of Jesus, the one who would keep all of God's promises, the one who would demonstrate how faithful God was to his own word. Because Jesus was the word that breaks into our world. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, up on the screen. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also we, he created the world. You see what's being said there? Jesus is the fullest and the final and eternal word that God speaks. There is no expectation of anything new from here on. And through the Scriptures, there is no longer any drought of God's Word. And through this Word, we learn that God is faithful and can be trusted. And like Hannah trusted God, like Samuel trusted God, but in a bigger way, we are given more assurance than what they had. Our assurance is built on the fact that Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive... We have greater assurance that if we pray, if we trust, if we hold on, then God will be faithful to us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. See, what Hannah and Samuel knew in part, we today see in fullness. And that pushes us on to keep holding on to our hope, to keep pursuing godliness and sanctification because we have an assured access to God. Friends, do you comprehend the incredible privilege we have to access God through Jesus Christ? We have a greater word of assurance. God will definitely hear our prayers. God will never forsake us and never leave us. He will always remember us. God will never not speak to us. We have His Word and His Spirit to help us, 
to help us hear him. And all because Jesus Christ has come and demonstrated that God is faithful and can be trusted. Trust is a hard thing. Trust needs to be earned. And you know what? Because of what Jesus has done, we can throw ourselves onto God and know that he will catch us. Why? Because he's our father. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that you have earned our trust completely because you have sent your son into this world. He has lived, he has died, and he has risen to life. Thank you that by your spirit we have come to know and trust Jesus. And the more we read your word, the more we grow in assurance, but we praise you and thank you that we can trust you, that you are faithful. So as we walk away from this passage today, as we begin this series in Samuel, as we think about the way in which you're working through your people, we give you thanks so much that the stories we've read today pave the way for Jesus to come, that our trust might have greater grounds of assurance, that our prayers might have greater confidence, that our living for you will not be in vain. Father, help us to keep living in these ways and trusting you all the days of our lives. For we ask this for your glory and our joy together. In Jesus' name, amen.